Now, as we take up this whole sermon, we began looking at this sermon last week, and he unfolds this, this message as he comes. Remember, this is the first message that is recorded that Paul is preaching on his missionary journeys. So as he goes out and begins to make this message clear, it helps us to understand what is going on. Also, it's useful to note this as he delivers this message, he's doing it in the context of the gathered synagogue. So many of those who are gathered together, and there has already been a reading of the law and prophets. So many of those who are gathered together will already be well acquainted with the Old Testament. Which, strangely enough, will not always be the case today when we engage other people. There may have been a time, right, where there seemed to be a, a broader familiarity with the word of God and, and with the scripture. That time seems to no longer exist. It's somewhat gone by the wayside. Now, people may be acquainted here or there with a familiar story from the scriptures. But to be truly acquainted with the law and the prophets is a rare thing indeed these days. But I want us to, as we began to take it up last week, we saw that he launched in and he began his message in a very bold, brazen, and unwavering manner. He presented a God who's absolutely powerful, who's absolutely sovereign. Because remember, he began with those words, men of Israel and you who fear God in verse 17 now. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. And if you had been listening as I read through there, he chose them. He led them out of Egypt. He put up with them. He gave them the land as inheritance. He gave them judges. He gave them a king. Then he removed him. Then he raised up David. And when you read through there, if you're paying close attention, you're going to sit back and notice something very clear. Who's in control? It's not just happening. It's not just unfolding and God is some sort of distant casual observer. Or one who is occasionally prompting. But rather, you see the direct ruling and powerful hand of God in things that people often think, well, that's just circumstances. That's just history. Even in the world, that's just nature. And some would dare attribute things to mother nature. Is there such a thing? There is not. Who is the one who controls all nature? It is God whose hand is sovereign over every event and every detail in the unfolding of human history. God, he works all things according to the purpose, according to the counsel of his will, as it teaches us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. And oftentimes we forget that, and it's important to know this, and I like this, that when he begins this presentation of the gospel, he begins with presenting God. God exalted, God glorious. God powerful, God holy, and then he gets over to men. Today, it seems we've kind of turned things around. You're having a hard time in life. You're feeling sad. You're feeling down. You're struggling. You need a little help. You, you, you need, need. Well, and, and it all starts with who? 
And then guess what? There's a guy up there who can help you. It's like, wait a second. That's not the emphasis of the scripture. The emphasis of the scripture is God is God. And he's glorious and he's powerful. And remember, even as it unpacked that, every leader, Moses among them, every king, one for 40 years, and then David after him, they're all there for limited time. As God is unpacking things and in the unfolding circumstances of the early history of Israel, he did, he did, he did. It says all this happened over 450 years. I want to ask you a little question, just a simple quiz, which I expect all of you to pass. Here's the question. How many other kings or presidents or prime ministers have ever held power for 450 years? None. And I would proffer this as well. That is an inadequate statement regarding God's rule and dominion. Nebuchadnezzar makes it clear, yes, it included these 450 years, but his dominion is from generation to generation. We might go so far as to say, world without end. Before there was creation, who was there? God, with all power and all might to do whatever he pleased, whenever he wanted. And it pleased him on one fine day that being the first day of creation, to begin the work of creation. And it's going to please him in Christ to bring it all to an end before, during all of human history. When all is brought to an end and we face eternity, who remains in absolute and utter dominion? Who will always be the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Yeah, you passed, you know, but that's often the case. It's a simple test. There's nobody else who qualifies. There's no one else who fits this. He is the, as we saw, he is the chooser. He unfolds it. He is the establisher. He is the deliverer. He is the determiner. And then we take up kind of our focus today. He is the promiser. And here's the beautiful thing about this. What God has promised, he fulfills. Now, please note this. There are times we might make promises with every good intention. I will be there at five. Do we have absolute control on whether or not we can really be there at five? That, you get out there and suddenly the car doesn't start. Or you get in the car and suddenly, inexplicably, the roads are blocked and everybody is stopped. And what do you do? And so at, there are many times in many places we will make promises, we will make plans, but we are unable to fulfill those promises. Not necessarily always because of evil in us, but because of limitations in us. But when God makes a promise. He does it. It's, it's done. Because he has not. Any of those limitations. He promises that which is according to his will. And what he promises. 
he fulfills. The theme of this comes directly to us out of Acts 13, and I'm going to read verse 32 and 33 to you. Listen to what it says. He tells them, we bring you the good news. We bring you what we often call the gospel, the glad tidings. We bring you the good news. Here's the good news. That what God promised our fathers, this he has fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus. And I think that you, we want to make sure we get that great focus. That which he promised, he fulfilled by raising Jesus. Jesus. Now go stay in there in Acts chapter 13 verse 23. It says this, of this man's offspring, this is uh, of David, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Once again, I love the way that 2 Corinthians unfolds this by saying this in 2 Corinthians 1 verses 20 and following. For all God's promises find their yes in him and i do want to note this for us it, jesus is the truest treasure jesus is that great sovereign king he is the hope of glory christ in us he is the one who brings a newness of life and a transformation he is the yes and what breaks my heart sometimes is they want to take the big yes of the true glory and treasure that is ours in Christ. And they want to kind of put that aside and say, but, but I want the world's treasure instead of the treasure that is in Christ. No, in him is the great riches of God's mercy and grace that have been given us. And I will tell you this. The scriptures uh, account for us an occasion where there are two men. And one was rich and feasted sumptuous every day. And there was another man named Lazarus who was a beggar and struggled and suffered and longed to eat the crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. You remember that account? And we tend to think, now, if I was to say, who wants to be the rich man? Line up over here. And who wants to be the poor man line up over here? Uh, struggling, suffering, hungry, and begging. I think almost everybody would tend to line up over here. I want what the rich man has. But we know that was not the end of the account, was it? How did the accounts keep going? They both died. And as died they they realized quickly that this life is but so brief and so temporary and it's not the focus it's not the centrality of who we are and what we're about the the rich man went down and was in torment and in suffering but he looked across a great chasm and saw by abraham's side over there lazarus one who in his lifetime struggled and suffered. And, and Abraham would say of him, now he is comforted. And that comfort was going to last for all eternity. And on the other side, the rich man. So ultimately, there is this sense in which we would have said, with regard to the physical and fleshly things, one was rich and one was poor. 
But with regard to the spiritual, indeed the essential and the eternal things, I ask you, who was rich? Who had the better possession? Would you rather be rich for 50 years or blessed in comfort and, and, and glory for all eternity? Is there any comparison? Even as I say that, we know there's no comparison, but you know as well as I do, there's a little place in your heart and a little place in your mind that says, I wouldn't mind a little peace right now. Right. Now, I'll note this. We know our inheritance is reserved in heaven. We don't need to be like the prodigal son who says, give me now, give me now. God knows our needs. He loves his children. He looks upon us. He hears our prayers. When Sometimes he doesn't give us what we think we need. He gives us strength to endure instead. But know this. He always gives that which is best. That which is most good and beneficial for his people eternally. And for his glory and praise always. We've never been, most of us, 40 days without eating and famished. But even as Jesus was and Satan came to him to tempt him, he said what? Turn this bread, this stone, into bread. And Jesus says what? After 40 days of not eating, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. A clear Higher prior. Well, but how, how, how can I eat this? How, how will it fill me? How will it sustain me? Bodily it may not, but this body can waste away. But inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. That's what the scriptures unpack for us. And so when we begin to see these promises, uh, all the promises find their yes in him. It is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in him. Now, when it says he is the promiser and he is fulfilled, we need to see a little bit about the prophetic action and authority of God. Now, as I unpack this for you, remember, I'm going to have to kind of give you a summary overview of which we can spend years and years studying and contemplating. But understand this, when, when God created the heavens and the earth, he ended up making on the sixth day man. And most of you will be familiar with what that man's name was which is Adam. You remember that. And the scriptures tell us of that man, that first Adam, and then that Adam that sinned. And because of his sin, condemnation passed upon all men. In Adam, all sinned. And as a result of that, we've all come and been born into this world. And you know what we've gone and done? You know it. Every single one of us, without fail, has sinned. But then the scriptures remind us and speak of Jesus as the last Adam, the second Adam. So when you read through the scriptures, you constantly see these things. You have Adam, but the first, the, that Adam failed. But you have Christ who's like a second Adam who doesn't fail. And, and you have a picture of Noah uh, uh, through whom some were delivered from the wrath of God temporally, but you have Christ through whom we 
multitude are delivered from the wrath of God eternally. And so in Christ, you have a better than Adam. In Christ, you have a better than Noah. In Christ, you have a better than Abraham, a better than Moses, a better than David. We could go on. And I may not know all of your names, but I could say in Christ, we have a better than Jason. You know, and, and even when we say that, even that's kind of an understatement. Because when I say the phrase better than, we're thinking a nudge ahead. Now, it's not even a strong enough word, is it? Because if you were, and I ask you not to, to compare me with Christ, we're not even in the same realm and category. My failings have been replete, have been many, have been constant, have been the same things again and again. And I strive and I hope and I progress to some degree by God's grace, but I still fall short of perfection. I still find myself at least once a decade making a mistake. Well, I mean, at least that's a true phrase, right? I could have said at least every, once every 10 minutes. It still might have been true. But, but, but in Christ, where was there any sin? Where was there any failing? Where was there any shortcoming? And so you have these promises, even in the, the opening passage in Ezekiel, where it said, I will raise up David. And set him on the throne. It actually says this. If you would listen. In Jeremiah chapter 30. Verse 9. Now Jeremiah note this. Is written after David has died and is buried and gone. After Solomon has died and is buried and gone. After a number of their children. The, the kingdom has been divided in two. The kingdoms have gone into exile. And it says this in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 8 and 9. It shall come to pass on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke off from you, the oppressor who is oppressing him. I will burst your bonds, and no foreigner shall make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up. Well, so is David going to be raised up? Not David, literally, a descendant of David, a better David than David, as we might say. A better Adam than Adam, a better Moses than Moses. Oh, indeed, the best. Uh, part of the language here is this, and I want you to see this because I, you'll find this a little bit challenging. In verse 22, it says this uh, of Acts 13. And when he had removed him. That's removed Saul. He, he raised up David to be their king. Of whom he testified. I have found in David the son of Jesse. A man after my own heart. Now I'm encouraged by that. Because David was not perfect. Yet he was a man after God's own heart. I am not perfect. I will confidently say. Neither are you. And yet by the grace of God. We can be men and women. After God's own heart imperfectly and by grace increasingly but it says this of David uh, a man after my own heart and it says of him who will do all my will now that's an interesting statement so 
David's going to do all his will. David's never going to mess up. Well, David's going to do all his will with regard to executing his responsibilities as king of Israel. So, for example, when God tells um, uh, Saul, go to this city, destroy it, utterly wipe out every single person who's there, and then burn it, take nothing for yourselves. And Saul and them go in there and kill most of the people, but keep the king alive as a point of pride. Take all the good sheep, take all of the, the good booty or bounty, however you want to say it, all of that good money that's left over. You know, I'm using pirate language here, all right? Uh, as, he, as he took all the, as they took, he made excuses, right? And God said to him, as he said, the, the, the prophet who came to him, what is this bleating that I hear? As he hears the sound of those, there's no excuses. And Saul tried to make the excuse, well, you know, the people. It wasn't just the people, and the scriptures are very clear, Saul and the people. So with regard to that, when God would send message to David, do this, go here, go there, accomplish it, accomplish that, David would go here, go there, do this, do that, as God told him. Even as it says, still in Acts 13, jumping over for a moment to verse 36, for David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation. So there, you see what I'm saying? He did. Now, but noting this, that David did much with regard to the will of God. But did he do everything without fail? Well, we know very clearly, or, or most of us know, I, I love the language that God said when he sent Samuel. He says this uh, to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 28. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And I have to say, the scriptures kind of make it clear that that kind of happens again. <laughs> That the kingdom of David and the throne of David is ultimately inhabited by one who's better than David. Because David, it tells us, if you were to look at it in 2 Samuel chapter 11, which of which I'm sure you're aware. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David commits adultery. And then David commits murder. He's responsible for organizing the death of Uriah the Hittite. We have, we have in that adultery and murder. I ask you, is this pleasing to God? Not at all. And yet this is what David did. And it's somewhat encouraging. This is what David did. A man after God's own heart. So listen. Have you ever failed? Made mistakes? In ways that maybe you would say, I don't know if I'm fit. I don't know if I'm fit for service. I don't know if God can use me. In the mercies of God, after David did this, was he removed from being king? Did he lose the privilege of having his son be king after him? And the answer is no. God not only forgave him. But continued to open doors and enable him to serve 
and continued to pour out upon him blessing. I think, what a merciful God that he would do that to David. And I, and I, I want you to note this for a moment. Even as we say, what a merciful God that he would do that to David. Many of us may say, David's particular sins, we may not all be guilty of. But are we not guilty of a multitude of sins ourselves? And so instead of just re, uh, being amazed at the kindness, the patience, the forgiveness and mercy of God towards David. Let's take a moment and remember the kindness, the mercy and the patience of God in Christ towards me and towards you. And, and, and even as we begin to see this, uh, this, this section um, unfold and we see the, the limitations and to a degree uh, the shortcomings and weaknesses of David want to move forward and see something greater and something stronger. Not only is God the promiser, but in his promise, he has given to us, I don't even hear want to simply say better, he has given us the perfect, the absolute perfect, blameless, blemishless, spotless lamb of God. Remember, the sacrifices required that. They had to, in a sense, give their best to the Lord, and it couldn't have any visible, recognizable flaws on it because it would be symbolic of the perfection that is necessary. Perfect, substituted for the imperfect. With regard to men's sin, is anyone forgiven by the blood of bulls and goats and calves? And the answer is no. So there has to be then one who would come that would be that perfect sacrifice for sin. And we do remember the words, stepping forward, as John the Baptist says what? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. There is no other sacrifice. There is no other fit one. And Jesus is the perfect, and we really see that progress. There was a sense in which David would do all his will regarding the kingdom, but not do all his will perfect obedience in his life so we see the distinction whereas christ would fulfill all of the will of god with regard to his kingdom and his ministry and his interaction with others and indeed he would fulfill all of the good pleasure of god at all times in every way public and private well known and secret and many of us may know that some of our sins are known to others. They see them. They hear about them. They experience them. Most of our sins, they don't. We know them. And God knows them. And I want to tell you something a little more scary. Some of the sins that we commit... We don't even know because of the self-deception, because of the blindness and callousness, presumptuous sin, which is why the psalmist would often say, search my heart. 
know, reveal to me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Paul says, you look, my conscience is clear, but I am not thereby exonerated. I'm not thereby acquitted. It is God that I answer to. And look, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And our own hearts and minds are constantly wanting to justify us. And so what I say is this. I've come to know by reading of the scriptures and by earnestness of prayer and the stirring of the spirit inside of me. I am a sinful man. But I don't even understand the full scope of my sinfulness. But God has been pleased to reveal to me I am not worthy. But he has set his love upon me and forgive me and changed me that I know now what I do and what I love are not the same things that I used to do and love. My love is new. My desires are new. I still stumble along the way. But listen what it says in John chapter 8 verse 29 of Jesus as we're really comparing uh, David and Jesus here. In John chapter 8 verse 29 it says... Um, he who sent me is with me, Jesus says. He has not left me alone. Listen to what Jesus says here in John 8, 29. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I mean, do you hear that sentence? Jesus says of God the Father, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Can you say that? We cannot even say that of our own parents when we were younger. I always did the things that were pleased. Did we? Can any of us say that of our kids? Even though they do a lot and they bring us a lot of joy and pleasure. There's a little bit of turmoil and strife mixed in there. There's a little bit of tension and trouble mixed in there. Because we are not perfect. But listen, I always do that which is pleasing to him. And so listen. That's why when we, when we understand this. We are accepted in the beloved. In Christ. We have the confidence. To draw near to the throne of grace. To find help in time of need. Why? Because our confidence is not. I am fit. To draw near to God. But what? My sin was placed upon him at the cross and he bore the wrath of God for my sin and his perfect obedience has now been accounted to me and so when I come in the presence of God I come in the confidence of the perfections of Christ and that is glorious isn't it and so we know that that, that we did not do it but he did and he accomplished all of these things that we might draw near to God in him. Now, now come with me as we, as we just want to continue to unpack this a little bit. Move on with me as we, as we come down. If, if you're looking in here, what we saw uh, from the beginning of, of this message, verse 17, uh, on down to verse uh, 25 he he's accounting the history of them and also it's interesting the way that he notes this there remember jesus says these words concerning john the baptist simple words he said of those born of a woman 
No one greater has been born than John the Baptist. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? So that, you know, that though we know that there was Job was in a sense righteous in his generation, and we may think highly of, of Abraham, and we think, of course, highly of Enoch, who walked with the Lord and is taken. In the testimony of Jesus, who was better than all of them? John the Baptist. And yet, what is John the Baptist's statement there uh, that is recounted for us in verse 25 of Acts 13? After me, one is coming whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Which often in that historical context, the person who would, when a, when a guest would arrive, the person who would untie the sandals and wash the feet was the lowest slave among the household servants. It was the absolute bottom one gets the worst job that he's got to take off the, these sandals and, and wash the, the dirty, smelly feet of visitors. Not a pleasant thing, is it? Now listen. In a sense, the greatest man ever born of a woman says, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest slave to Jesus. Okay, see, that's a problem for me. Because I'm not the greatest man who, who was ever born of a woman. Hint. It's a problem for you too. Because neither are you. John was. So if, if, if John's not worthy. Then who is? And the answer is. No one is. So then how can we get. From being unworthy. To being accepted. Nothing. But the grace of God. It is all of mercy. It is all of grace. It is entirely rooted in forgiveness. And this is what is the scary thing. The modern gospel has the tendency, instead of making much of God, it makes much of you. Instead of making much of Christ, it makes much of me. Oh, you are important. Oh, God wants you. Oh, God needs you. Oh, God loves you. You, you, you. It's like, no, no, no. Listen, you're unworthy. Oh, boy. You're a sinner, oh boy. God is glorious. Christ is perfect. And then what happens? And yet, God will forgive your sins and accept you in Christ. In Christ, you can come with full assurance of salvation. Not trusting in yourself, not trusting in your work, but wholly resting in Jesus Christ. And sometimes it scares me because I think people walk away from circumstances and teaching and preaching and gospel pre presentation where instead of thinking, oh, how great is our God and his grace and oh, how perfect and righteous is Christ my Savior. Oh, what love. Oh, what sacrifice. Oh, that I might give my all for him. No, they say, yeah, God wanted me. I mean, and why wouldn't he? Because, no, no, no. He shouldn't. 
but that he would set his love upon us, that he would send his gospel to us, that he would take us who even as, as, as is acknowledged by John, take us who are unworthy and unfit and say, come, be my sons, be my beloved, be, as it tells us in Peter, my treasured possession." And so I glory in the mercy of God that would treasure me, though I am not a treasure. Right? And so when we, when we see this message unfold, it is remarkable. And then he moves on from that to begin to un unpack it even more. Look with me in verse 32. We're going to just see what's, what's beautiful about this is it's the basic message of the gospel that we've heard many times. And so we'll just, as I've read through it, we'll see these wonderful things so clearly. And I, uh, before that, look with me in verse 26, as I want you to see this. Um, Brothers and sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. Some translations there say this Word of salvation. I'm going to throw a little Greek in there for you. Don't get nervous. This Greek is a very familiar Greek to most. And it will put pieces together for you. It actually says. To us was sent this logos of God's salvation. This logos of salvation from God. Now. In the beginning. John chapter 1 verse 1 says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And we know that, that it's a wonderfully familiar one, but it's a confusing one too. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And down in verse 14 it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the glory of the Father. And so who was the Logos? Christ. And so there is a sense in which when you read this, well, is he talking about the word preached? Or is he talking about the word that was sent? If the word was not sent, we would not have a word to preach. If Christ did not come and live perfectly and die on behalf of his people and was buried and risen the third day, there would be no message. There would be no forgiveness of sin. I, I, I want us to, if only we could understand this. There's no other way. I mean, you could gather together all of the claimed religious people of the world and say, let's figure out a way of salvation. They're not going to come up with one. The only plan of salvation is that which God himself set forth. In his eternal son. And there's no other way. He, he, he begins to unpack this. In, in the same way. This logos of salvation that's come forward. And then in verse 32. He says this. And we bring this good news. That God promised. To our fathers. This alone. Is the good news. And what, it, what, what do we know about this? Jesus had come. But he was not recognized, verse 27 and 29. They, they, uh, the prophets had spoken of him. The people did not recognize him. And they ended up fulfilling 
exactly what the prophecies said would happen. Remember, the scriptures tell us that Jesus would be crucified. The, the scriptures tell us that he would be pierced as we read passages like Isaiah 53 and others for the sins of his people. We have all of those things there. And yet, they did not recognize it. And when Jesus came, they did what? They gathered against him. Even the devil himself sought to enter and did enter the heart of Judas in order to betray Jesus. And so here's the interesting thing. The devil is the enemy of God in truth. The, the leaders of Israel were the enemies of Christ. And yet, you know what they all did? They foolishly fulfilled everything God had prophesied. I mean, the devil worked relentlessly towards his own defeat. What a dummy. You know, because, again, that's the blindness and the callousness of pride. But pride goes before a fall. And even now the enemy may deceive himself and think that he has power. But we are, by the prayers of God, protected from the evil one. He has not power over us. And then the scriptures go on to, to unfold this even more clearly. If you would look with me. And it says this. Uh, and it begins to unfold this. Jesus was not recognized, but the prophets understood. And he fulfilled all that was being spoken of by the prophets. Verse 27 and 28 say this. Uh, they condemned him. It's read about him the Sabbath every day. But they fulfilled them by condemning him. Listen. Condemnation passed upon all men. Jesus was the one who walked among us who was not condemned of God. And men condemned him. But then he was pleased to bear the condemnation of a multitude of people that we might be saved. He who had no condemnation would be condemned so that we who are condemned would be set free. That's amazing, isn't it? And then, then he goes on to say this. Not only was, uh, was he condemned, it, it says this if you're, if you're with me in verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt. Here's the difference. Everyone else is condemned because they're guilty. He was condemned but there was no guilt. Everyone else died because death has passed upon all men for all has sinned. But Jesus had not. But he was condemned to death. And indeed he gave himself up to death that he might take up life again. And he gave himself up to death that he might have victory over death. That he might deliver us from death. So we would say, death, where is your sting? Grave where is your victory? So that we, the fear of death no longer has power over us. Because the, the fear of death is the strength of, of sin. And we are delivered from that. Jesus even took upon himself the curse. Look what it says in verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written upon him, they took him down from the tree that he was laid upon. Again, you see these things. They condemned him who shouldn't have been. 
he was crucified on a tree. And the scriptures remind us, it, for example, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, as it quotes from Deuteronomy 21, 23, where it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so it's, it's amazing when you think of it. I was condemned. I was cursed. You were condemned. You were cursed. And you know what? Christ wasn't. But he bore the condemnation of men. He took the curse upon himself. That we might what? No longer be condemned. We might no longer be cursed. Do you see that? That's what's spoken of as the divine transaction. He took sin, our sin, his righteousness to us. He was condemned, condemnation removed from me. He was cursed, curse removed from me. He died, my death removed from me that I now have life in him. Well, it sounds like you're saying all that we are and all that we've become and all that we would hope for is all because of Christ. And the answer is yes. It is all and entirely because of him. Verse 29, he was buried. Verse 30 and 31, he was raised from the dead. Verse 31, he showed himself to the apostles. It's not just a story. We know that in 1 Corinthians 8, he showed himself to more than 500 at one time. And so we know this. When, when, this, when this gospel presentation began to unfold... He started out with old covenant history, right? Abraham and the children of Israel and the Exodus. And he says all of that prepares pictures and points forward to Christ. Then from there, he moves from old covenant history to John the Baptist and the prophets. And he says they what? Prepare, point forward to the perfection that is in Christ. And then it speaks, as we've seen, of God's promises. And God's promises themselves are all fulfilled in Christ. So it's as if all of Scripture, indeed all of history, indeed all of creation, Christ is to be preeminent. Christ is to be exalted. Christ is to be first and foremost. That's why it says this in Acts 13. And I love this. Listen closely. 38. Let it be known to you brothers. That through this man. Jesus. God become man. Forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Listen. If anyone else tells you forgiveness of sin. You can get it like this or like that. Or by doing this or by doing that. Do not listen to them. There is forgiveness of sin only in Christ Jesus. And it says this. Forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which they could not be freed from the law of Moses. The Jews had a tendency. Their hope was in what? The law. And living out the law and the sacrifices of the law. It says that doesn't do it. The only hope is in Christ. And you could fill that in with whatever anybody hopes in. There is forgiveness of sin only in Christ. But you got to love what it says there. And this forgiveness. This freedom from sin. Is what? 
it's proclaimed to you, and everyone who believes is freed from sin. But what if they were murderers? Like David? What if they were adulterers? What if they, and you can list all kinds of things that you think make a person unworthy. And all you're doing is putting them in the same category as you and me. Unworthy. Not only unworthy to be saved, unworthy to even touch the feet. But God in Christ not only calls us to, to touch the feet, but he calls us as his own family. He calls us to draw near. He calls us to love, to intimate communion and embrace. Can you imagine that? That we are accepted like sons in spite of who we are and all that we'd ever done. And lastly, I want to remind you of this from verse 41. Listen, it says this. Or verse 40 and 41. Beware, therefore, lest what the prophet said should become of you. Beware, therefore. What does it say? Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing something in your days that you will not believe even if someone tells you. Beware. You know what it's saying? And this is a scary thing. In Christ, the truth of our unworthiness, the truth of God's power and sovereignty, the truth of salvation only in Christ for all who believe in him. It's kind of an unbelievable truth. You would not believe it, it says, even if I told you. And now we live in the day where he has told us. And so we need and we by grace believe what maybe one time we didn't. And many of us have had that experience. We'd heard it. We'd heard it. And we said, no, 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 no. And then one day the grace of God by his spirit came to us. And the same gospel we'd heard many times before now came to us with life. It's like, oh, this is true. Christ is the son of God. Christ did live sinlessly. He did die. He was buried. He did rise again. He does Make intercession for me at the right hand of God. He is, as it was promised, he fulfilled. Those promises that still remain will be fulfilled. He is coming again for those who are eagerly awaiting his appearing. Amen. And our salvation in him is sure. Foolishness to the Gentiles. A stumbling block to the Jews. Innocent, in a sense, unbelievable. God calls us to believe that which is seemingly unbelievable. What's unbelievable? Because as it says in Romans 1, in sin we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But then the Spirit of God comes and helps us to believe that which men by nature don't, but by grace do. So that we say what? We are saved by grace, and that is not our own doing, but God gets all of the praise and all of the glory. Indeed, He is the Savior. We might say this as a simple closing sentence. God saves sinners. Amen? Let's pray as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together.